Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. I want to welcome everybody to Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Joy Bauer, and I am very excited to be back hosting Dietitian Connection's accredited Dietitian to Dietitian web event series. Today's Dietitian to Dietitian event is sponsored by the National Honey Board, an agriculture promotion group educating about the benefits and uses of honey, as well as bringing awareness to the honeybees that make it possible. Many of our clients love honey because it's a more natural sweetener. And if you'd like, you could learn more about how honey can help make healthier eating easier and more delicious. Plus, you could find free science-based resources at honey.com slash nutrition. Now, before we get started on today's topic, the Mediterranean diet and gut health from research to recipes, we have a few very quick housekeeping items. First, there will definitely be time for questions from the audience during today's conversation. This is what we personally plan to cover. The basics of the Mediterranean diet what the research shows about its role in gut health and how we can help our patients and clients adopt this dietary pattern. But if there is something we don't cover that you wanna know about, please add your questions to the Q&A box, not the chat box. And you'll also be able to see questions that other members of the audience have submitted and you can upvote their question if you'd also like to hear it answered. And finally, there will be a recording available following the session. So you'll get an email shortly after this webinar ends with details about the recording and also how to obtain your continuing education certificate. And now to introduce our wonderful guests, Dr. Dr. Hannah Polsher is an associate professor of nutrition in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition and a member of the Division of Nutritional Sciences, the Institute of Genomic Biology, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, and the Personalized Nutrition Initiative at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She completed postdoctoral training focused on the human microbiome, a PhD in nutritional sciences, and a BS in food science and human nutrition at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She's also a registered dietitian. 
Dr. Holscher's laboratory uses clinical interventions and computational approaches to study the interactions of nutrition, the gastrointestinal microbiome, and health. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, Joy. It's great to be back and to see so many people on from just all over. I'm in um, the Midwest, so central time right before lunch here. Uh, well, we are lucky to have you, and I can't wait to jump into the questions. So next up, Chef Abby Gelman, MSRDCDN, is a spokesperson, recipe, and product developer, educator, nationally recognized culinary nutrition expert, and director of teaching kitchen and culinary medicine at St. Barnabas Hospital in New York City. She creates, produces, and hosts cooking and nutrition videos and works with a wide variety of food companies, commodity boards, food service operators, health professionals, and private clients. She has three published cookbooks, all based on the Mediterranean diet, and appears in local and regional broadcast media and contributes to many, many publications as both an expert and an author. Hi, Abby. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is really great. So I want to welcome both Hannah and Abby. We are incredibly excited and super grateful to have both of you here. And you both bring such vast, uh, varying perspectives to this discussion. So thank you. And I am going to just jump right into the questions. And I'm going to start with Abby. So the Mediterranean diet is incredibly popular, and it's very well researched. Just so that we're all on the same page when we talk about the Mediterranean diet, what exactly are we talking about? And are there specific components to the diet that are universally accepted? And does the the pattern vary from country to country because I know it's vast and it covers a lot of ground. Yeah, sure. So the it includes the Mediterranean region, which is actually more than 20 countries around the Mediterranean Sea. So it's everything from Italy and Greece, but it also is Turkey and Egypt and Morocco and Libya. It's a really diverse um, range of countries there. So both culturally and from a culinary point of view. So the focus is similar. It's all around the sea. So there's a lot of seafood. Um, it's very plant-based. So there's fruits, veggies, beans, legumes, whole grains, you know, lentils, uh, nut seeds, all of these things. So a lot of fiber, a lot of those nutrients, um, plus lean protein. I mentioned seafood. So those omega-3 fatty acids and then other healthy fats like avocados, veggie oil, olive oil. Um, what changes a little bit might be in Italy, we might see basil and oregano, whereas in Moroccan um, cuisine, we might see cumin and coriander, but it could be a lentil dish with just slight variations in those spices and herbs or cooking styles. Okay, great to know. So fundamentally, it's the same mm -hmm. from country to country, but the flavorings and sort of the pizzazz and presentation changes makes perfect yeah, sense. And Exactly. And there's a lot of lifestyle aspects, which we can get into if you want to, about just social and community and making food um, for family and friends and more than just the function of eating. And I feel like we're going to talk about all of that for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually going to pivot over to Hannah now and um, talk a little bit about the research. So research is emerging to suggest alterations to the gut microbiome may play a role in the health benefits that we've been seeing from the Mediterranean diet. We've clearly seen a lot of studies related to cardiovascular disease, metabolic disorders, and aging and frailty. 
What can you tell us about the way the Mediterranean diet impacts the gut? And does the research point to specific foods within the Mediterranean diet that is producing the changes to the microbiome? Is it all about fiber? Like what's exact, what is happening here? It's a big question. Yeah, it's a huge question. Um, And I'm excited to be able to dive into some of it during this webinar today. So as Abby mentioned, there are a lot of helpful components within the Mediterranean diet. Um, So especially these plant-based foods, because when we think about these plant-based foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, legumes, pulses, they're going to be great sources of dietary fiber and microbes love fiber. So one of the really interesting things that the gut microbiome does for us is act as essentially this, you know, organ to break down the components in our diet that our own digestive enzymes can't break down. And the fiber is super important because when the microbes break it down, they produce byproducts like short chain fatty acids. And those short chain fatty acids can have benefits both in the gut by doing things like um, tightening barrier function. They can reduce inflammation by making um, breaking down more fiber and making more short chain fatty acids. We actually lower the pH of the gut and that can be beneficial for making your um, microbiota more resilient against pathogens like Campylobacter or E. coli, which might be traveling along on um, something questionable that you decided to eat. So those are some of the the gut associated benefits. So certainly fiber within those. The other area that's developing, um, there would be a couple buckets. So the unsaturated fatty acids is something I'm really interested in because the unsaturated fatty acids, you know, those mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids can also um, affect the way potentially that bile acids are secreted and then microbes will actually change those bile acids in a way that makes it able for them to survive. And so these secondary bile acids, for example, we wanna keep those really low. And we've seen research that um, components of the Mediterranean diet like nuts may actually reduce those secondary bile acids. And then lastly, just to expand this out a little bit more, the phytochemicals or the phytonutrients within foods, those are emerging as an area that microbes play a role in modifying so that we can get some additional benefits from these plant-based components within the Mediterranean diet. So have you seen any um, specific phytonutrients within food? So like removing the fiber piece and the unsaturated fat, very specific phytos and and linked to specific foods that have shown positive So one of the phytonutrients that our group will spend some time studying is um, lutein. So within avocados, avocados are a great source of lutein, and that's a phytonutrient that you can also find in other foods. You know, these green leafies, you can even find it in eggs. But lutein is really important because it accumulates within the eye, within the macula, and it can help reduce risk of developing uh, macular degeneration, for example. And We've particularly been studying it because my colleague, Naman Khan, in kinesiology and community health, studies nutritional neuroscience. And um, you can think about the um, functionality of your eye and that lutein, and the lutein can accumulate in the brain and can help with um, mental functioning, is some of the kind of earlier work that we've published looking at avocados and the nutrient components of it in cognitive function. Very neat. Thank you for that. Um, So Abby, 
I'm going to pivot back to you now. And I'm wondering, like, when adopting a Mediterranean diet, where should people start? I know it's like a really big question, but what are, if I were to ask you, what are three easy recommendations just to get our patients and our clients going? What would you tell me? Yeah, sure. The first one I love to tell people is adding instead of subtracting. So to make it less overwhelming, don't tell someone you can't do that. You're never allowed to do that. Don't eat that. We want to talk about what we can add. So the fruits, the vegetables, these mainstays of our Mediterranean diet, how can we add that? Maybe that is asking our patients, what is your favorite vegetable? One vegetable you're willing and able to eat three times a week. So maybe that's your food focus goal for the first week is adding broccoli or spinach or whatever that one vegetable is three times a week. Um, or maybe it's a piece of fruit, or maybe it's trying a new kind of bean. Um, but adding something um, in a small way that seems feasible to whoever it is that we're working with. Um, the second one is looking to your pantry. So that could be um, canned beans and lentils. It could be canned tomatoes. It could be adding some new dried spices to your mix. There's a lot of um, pre-mixed spice blends that are out there that are interesting, that can kind of jazz things up for you. And it could be even frozen veggies or frozen fruit or frozen pre-cooked grains. Um, these are also accessible options, affordable options. So it's an easy way to get food on the table quickly. Um, you know, we're all busy, we're all working with things. So if speed and, and all those things are an issue, um, that is one thing I like to look at is our pantry. And then aiming for balance. So just visualizing a plate and what it can look like. And we don't all eat a plate divvied up this way every time, but kind of trying to visualize half of your plate as veggies and fruit, non-starchy veggies and fruit, a quarter starch. So it could be potato or sweet potato or a grain, and then a quarter protein. Um, and it could be seafood. It could be plant-based like beans or tofu, um, but trying to visualize it and in that way and aiming for balance. Three like super helpful practical tips Thank for you. sure. And <laughs> I especially loved what you opened up with, how you said that the focus should be on what we should be adding versus subtracting, because yeah. I think people are so incredibly overwhelmed when they start a new eating style. I mean, it's a whole new lifestyle and yeah. they tend to associate deprivation and diet with, you know, any new yeah. way of eating that um, is going to be focusing on health. So I just, I that resonated with me in such a huge way. And um, before I go back to the research, I do want to take advantage of some of your culinary prowess and um, expertise. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, as a professional chef, do you have any sort of super easy tips or tricks from a cooking perspective that can yeah. help people get started or we can help our clients, uh, friends and family get started in the kitchen too. And, and specifically, I think for people that are not very savvy in the kitchen, they have, they're not sure. regular, cooking, but they do want to get started. Okay. Um, I go back to kind of that pantry example, right? So you can get pre-cooked grains now um, and canned beans and lentils and canned tuna and canned salmon. 
um, plus those spice blends. And, and you can even get, you know, garlic, olive oil and some of these nicer blends. So a grain bowl is a very easy way to start. So you just put some whole grains in there, some veggies, and they could be frozen veggies that you threw in the microwave. Um, and you mixed with a spice blend um, to jazz it up a little bit. And then you could put a can of salmon or a can of tuna on there. You could fry an egg and put the, some egg on there. Um, but that's using all things that you didn't really have to cut or chop yourself or really cook any more than a microwave um, or a little bit stovetop if you don't have a microwave. Um, oatmeal, same thing. So you can get instant oats and you can put some fruit and nuts on there. And that's a wonderful breakfast or some yogurt and fruit and nuts. Those are all kind of um, grab and go easier, non like less culinary skill type of things that take, you know, five minutes to do and give you all the things you need and can taste really delicious. We love the shortcuts. We love the short. Mm -hmm. And like, even like from my perspective, I always find that my easiest, the simplest recipes that I post and to and yeah. wind up being the most popular, you know, obviously it has to be yeah. delicious, but like simple is such a vital component for people for sure. Um, and everything yeah. that you're talking about too is affordable, which I love, yeah. which is super important. Um, so Hannah, when discussing the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet, are there other dietary patterns producing similar benefits to the gut microbiome in the same way as the Mediterranean diet does? Yeah, I mean, certainly other dietary patterns that are rich in things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and legumes. So the DASH diet immediately comes to mind or following the healthy eating index, which is a measure of how closely you're adhering to the dietary guidelines. Um, and then there's even some deviations of the Mediterranean diet that we've started looking into, which is the MIND diet. And so that's uh, kind of a little bit more focused on um, incorporating berries and the I, um, the green leafies. So those dark, um, like kale, for example, and those greens, because those may have some particular health benefits for cognitive function. And so again, as we think about the, you know, those certainly have well-established health benefits. When we look at the research on the microbiome, it's all still evolving. Um, some of the work we have published in this area is looking at adherence to the dietary guidelines, which is measured by the healthy eating index. And we looked at a really large cohort the American in the American Gut Project, and we only looked at, you know, the healthiest participants there. And what varied was individuals that adhered most closely to the dietary guidelines. So doing things like, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables, eating less saturated fat, um, consuming adequate dairy uh, and the like. Those individuals that adhered most closely had the greatest diversity in their microbiota. So, you know, the microbiome is a really fascinating area. We are still trying to hone in on, you know, the best biomarkers to use as markers of health. And so we have increasing research that the, you know, greater alpha diversity in adults is linked with more health, helpful, um, outcomes like lower rates of obesity, for example. So higher alpha diversity, greater health, there are some connections there. As far as the intervention trials go, that would still be out. Really the strongest evidence we have there is 
For those of you that may be in the hospitals and you'll see a patient um, suffering from C. difficile infections, you know, that's really just when you've needed to necessarily take antibiotics and you really knock down the diversity of the microbiota and then you get a bloom in C. diff and it produces toxins and you can end up with life-threatening diarrhea. When we do uh, fecal microbiota transplants to treat that, it can increase the diversity, introduce more microbes. It can be a life-saving treatment. Um, and so, you know, done in, it is increasingly done more under a doctor's care within some medical institutions. But I just wanted to give that example because it's really the strongest evidence we have for how alpha diversity is a marker of health in adults. It's mostly correlative for other health outcomes like obesity and diabetes. So bottom line, healthy eating index, adhering to the dietary guidelines, greater alpha diversity there in those adults. And our group has some additional analyses we're doing and will hopefully come out in the next year or so looking at how the microbiota may differ in individuals when they adhere more closely to the MIND diet versus the DASH diet versus the healthy eating index. Because um, my grad student, Alex, has shown me some really nice promising data on that, um, but we're still finalizing all of the, what does this mean? Why is it important type things? And it seems like there's so much overlap between those three diets, right? Mediterranean, yeah. DASH. Yeah. And it's it's like all common sense wise, it's all the good stuff. And it's, I think all of them are pretty plant forward, not vegetarian, vegan, but plant forward. Yeah. And that would be another diet pattern, right? Certainly there are health benefits of being vegan and vegetarian, you know, especially if you do it very thoughtfully and you make sure you're not protein deficient from those essential amino acids. But yeah, you... Um, you would think there wouldn't be that much of a gradient for the differences in the microbes. But just as one example, the MIND diet did have some differences versus the healthy eating index. And one of the hypotheses we're exploring is, you know, are those berries and green leafy vegetables go contributing to that? Because certainly they contain different types of fibers, but it again gets back to these different phytonutrients. And there was a question in the chat there earlier. So um, lutein and those carotenoids would be very plentiful in those green leafies as one example. That's great. And I, as a reminder to people, you can not only post your questions in the Q&A box, but you can also upvote other people's questions. So this way we'll know which are the most popular questions. And I'm going to open it up very soon to that as well. Um, so so before we open it up, a few more questions I have for you all. And I know we have a lot of great questions coming from the audience. So the, the Mediterranean diet is relatively easy, easy to understand. You know, thank you for laying it out for us. It's accessible and sustainable for a lot of people. Are there any downsides, drawbacks, people that it just doesn't work for? And I'm going to throw this to both of you. So whoever wants to answer that. From my standpoint, it's the cooking that I think scares people off. So I spend a lot of time, and we've already spent time on it today. I spent a lot of time trying to kind of help with tips and workarounds and strategies so that you're not cooking all the time. And certainly if you like cooking and you want to be cooking, feel free to spend hours in the kitchen. But all of the things that we have accessible to us, at least in the United States, in the grocery store and at our farm markets and, and around us, we can easily do it with those shortcuts in mind. And, and it does help a lot with the frozen and the canned and, and all of those things. No, that's great. And one thing also that I think could be helpful to for people to not feel so overwhelmed with the cooking 
is to challenge clients and patients, maybe just one night each week to yeah. search and, and select a healthy meal to make. Because I have found also yeah. that when you push people to just sort of like, you know, dip their toes in the cooking water, they suddenly feel so accomplished and proud of themselves and they connect mm-hmm. to their food in a way they never realized they could, that they want to cook a little bit more. I know there are obstacles, yeah. other responsibilities and time and pricing and affordability and accessibility, but I do think the desire to cook, once you start to cook, can kind of snowball. Yeah, Absolutely. Hannah, do you see any downsides or drawbacks? Yeah, and I, I was just going to elaborate on some of the um, comments in the Q&A. So with the FODMAP diet, certainly there may be some individuals that may struggle with certain foods. So it'd be important to work really closely with the registered dietitians on those eliminations. Because again, as we think about gut health, something like Abby had mentioned, you know, picking some some vegetables you can add in. So um, vegetables that are high in fructans like onions and garlics and leeks, those are great for having um, providing prebiotic type fibers to the microbiota to help stimulate some of those health benefits. But for individuals that have IBS, they may have dysregulation of the communication between the gut and the brain, and they you know are having issues with that distension related to some mild gas formation. So working really closely there and thinking about you know different swaps because again. Um, Galactians that are in beans, great for microbes, can be challenging for some individuals on FODMAPs. Um, so I would just suggest working really closely with the, the registered dietitian if you do need to follow the FODMAP diet, because we don't want to eliminate all of those if we don't have to, if maybe it can get down to just a select subset would be my suggestion there. Great, great. Um, okay, so we have <clears throat> we have a lot of questions. So the first question I'm going to ask, and either one of you can jump in. I think Abby, you might be better for this one, but y- you know, you'll let me know. What are the top spices and herbs in the Mediterranean cooking? And obviously, it's going to vary depending upon which country. But I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, this might be a little personal for me. Um, yeah, because it is a, it, based on the country, right? I personally use a lot of what I call more warming spices, which you see in like Israel, um, Lebanese, North Africa. So cumin, coriander, turmeric, cinnamon, um, a lot of, of that kind of, uh, I, I mean, I call them more earthy, more warming flavors. Um, on the European side, you might see basil, oregano, um, a lot more of the brighter green style of herbs. Um, but certainly you also find rosemary. Um, I guess that's also a green herb. I'm trying to now think of the difference between some other spices that you might see a lot. Um, we love them all. Greece or Italy. <laughs> we lo- I love them all. But I personally kind of tend to, to steer towards the cumin, coriander, turmeric situation a lot. Um, because I don't need to also keep fresh herbs around then either. And I still get all these wonderful different spices, but I can have them dried and on hand all the time. And I see someone wrote ginger. Yes. Ginger is another. (laughs) And turmeric. Yeah. And so like, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because from the um, practicality standpoint, it's great for people to know that, you know, not only from a flavor perspective, but also from 
a medicinal property perspective, the dried herbs yeah. are fabulous. So when you can't get the yeah. fresh herbs. Um, so um, maybe Hannah, you want to answer this. What are your thoughts on wine? Because on one hand, you know, it's celebrated on the Mediterranean diet in moderate amounts, but there's been a lot of negative play on alcohol and booze and wine. So this will be interesting. Yeah. I mean, personally, I am a big proponent of fermented foods. I love when microbes take something and to create something else, right? Milk into yogurt or um grapes into wine. It's more complex, right? We get this aroma, um, sourdough bread, those types of things. But I mean, the World Health Organization, the dietary guidelines, the recommend, the evidence is growing there that even moderate, you know, even minor amounts of alcohol, um, the American Cancer Society, if you don't already drink alcohol, it's not something you should be adding to your diet, right? The, um, it's, something that should probably be limited. And as we think about the microbiome and kind of incorporating that in there, there are effects on the microbiome and um, it can increase potentially damage to the liver, depending on some of those phenotypic responses and what microbes you may have in your gut. And then if we're trying to think about the phytochemicals that are part of the grapes, that would be resveratrol. But the resveratrol is really, I was just looking up the numbers last night um, because it's so hard to keep track. There's really only about three milligrams per liter of wine. And to get the benefits that they'll see from resveratrol, it's usually as a supplement and you're looking at 200 milligrams. So, you know, the microbiome connections for resveratrol and health benefits. So I know that's kind of a... (laughs) downer thing. I I do try to say, you know, foods can fit in moderation, but um, I I do have to rely on the, you know, the Lancet publications and the dietary guidelines where in general, um, and I'm guilty of this, right? Um, I I really enjoy a good glass of Pinot Noir. Um, Certainly trying to limit that whenever possible, but um, taking those risks and incorporating small amounts where it can, you know, bring some joy into your life on occasion. No, but that, and that's the smart answer, right? Just being selective. And can we now talk a little bit about dairy and how dairy can fit in? And this is for both of you all. Yeah, so certainly dairy, you know, yogurt is listed right on there and frequent consumption of yogurt. There are lots of cross-sectional and epidemiological studies, you know, larger cohort studies where individuals that consume yogurt have better health outcomes. They have lower rates of obesity, for example. And um, again, because I just love the microbial component of these, microbes are actually creating some bioactives in foods like dairy that can help reduce, um, they can have antihypertensive effects, for example. So um, one of the things that uh, again, they're they're somewhat preliminary, but some of the work that we've done, if we think about these Mediterranean pairings, is people will frequently do Greek yogurt with honey on top of it, drizzled on top if you have a plain yogurt. And so we were interested in if honey could actually improve the microbial survival through digestion. And we did find that um, in a simulated model of digestion that the honey did improve the probiotic survival through the digestive tract. And then we did also do a study in people and found similarly that there was slightly more survival of, we found more probiotics when they consumed the yogurt with the honey compared to the yogurt without the honey. And so um, we didn't see an improvement in the health outcomes for that particular probiotic. But um, again, thinking about 
consuming yogurt within the Mediterranean diet pattern, I think that can be um, a really great way to get adequate calcium to support bone health as well as gut health. And so you keep talking about yogurt and we know obviously that yogurt has the fermented asset to it specifically for the microbiome. What about all of the other dairy entities, um, cow's milk, cheese, ice cream, things like that. Would you put it in the same um, sort of world as yogurt? When, again, very specific to the gut and Mediterranean style of eating. Yeah. So for um, certainly yogurt, I wouldn't put in the same bucket as, or I'm sorry, I wouldn't put ice cream and yogurt in the same bucket, but the yogurts and cheeses, those, um, you know, some really interesting research, you know, that again, connects the microbial role of those dairy products on health is that the, um, the fermentation process and the food matrix of dairy is, even though those foods tend to be higher in saturated fat, for example, they're not going to be increasing LDL concentrations. And so there's, you know, again, that would be a topic for a whole nother webinar with the food matrix and dairy, but I find that fascinating. Um, but I think that um, incorporating, you know, cheeses and yogurt within the context of the Mediterranean diet has a strong role to support health, um, you know, and it hasn't been shown to have as detrimental effects for cardiovascular health versus like butter, which you would put into a different category. Okay, great to know. And like a lot of people are also upvoting not only the dairy question, but also putting eggs in there and eggs direct relationship to the gut within the Mediterranean style of eating. So Abby, do you want to take that? I know we know we get lutein from the yellow, but like <laughs> one thing as a whole, how eggs affect our microbiome. So uh, I, as far as I'm aware, and I might not know as much as Hannah on that specific part of it is um, eggs are very close to humans in that we can bio, that the protein is very bioavailable and I don't know if gentler is the word, but we absorb it well. Um, so I am a fan of eggs. I always promote eggs as part of, um, especially if you're vegetarian, um, it's a great source of protein and choline and all these other things that we need. Um, I don't know of any research specifically linked to the GI tract and the microbiome. Hannah might, um, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been some concerns with the choline in eggs and TMAO in cardiovascular health. I would say the bill is still out on if TMAO is actually a useful marker for cardiovascular health, because while there have been some really large um, kind of high impact papers on that area, um, you will actually find TMA in something like fish. So salmon, and we know salmon has a lot of benefits for cardiovascular health, right? The American Heart Association recommends fish twice per week because of those long chain fatty acids. So um, that would be the main research that I'm familiar with on eggs and the microbiome has been those connections with the choline in it and the um, increased of TMA and TMAO, which um, you know, you can put potentially more detrimental, but again, I generally, 
I have less concern about those because the the research is really so underdeveloped in those connections with cardiovascular health that I tend to think of them more as an affordable source of you know high protein and again since we study lutein the the bioavailability of the lutein would be quite good in those. Okay, great. So stay tuned. <laughs> we'll we'll yes, have like a full webinar on that for sure. So we have a lot of questions um, that want to elaborate more on the lowering of secondary bile acids and the unsaturated fatty acids. So can you explain like what are those secondary bile acids and what do we need to know? Yeah, so the secondary bile acids are kind of, well, bile acids in general, we're likely all familiar with if we think back to, you know, our college days when we were learning about digestion and absorption, right? Our body makes bile acids, um, they're stored in the gallbladder and they're secreted to help emulsify fat so we can digest and absorb it. So microbes are surviving in our gastrointestinal tract. And so bile acids are actually cytotoxic to microbes. And so some microbes have developed the capability to change the configuration of those bile acids. You can, bile acids are, there are hundreds of different types and they can get decorated with different motifs. They can get decorated with different amino acids and different hydroxyl groups. So the secondary bile acids as a class are from microbes. So microbes will take the primary bile acids that we secrete and change them to secondary bile acids. In general, we the higher concentrations of secondary bile acids in the gastrointestinal tract and the colon and in the fecal matter are detrimental to colonic health. So there are um, correlations with higher concentrations of secondary bile acids and colorectal cancer and liver cancer, for example. And it's because they can directly cause damage to intestinal cells. And so Again, we're really trying to understand, this is a big focus in my lab right now, where we're trying to understand how different types of fats, so unsaturated versus saturated, may be differentially stimulating the way bile acids are secreted and then how microbes modify them and how those are connected with health. My particular interest is actually with glycemic control because bile acids are, um, we are starting to see they aren't just important for digestion, they actually have endocrine signaling function. So again, bile acids are a complicated area. I don't like to dichotomize things, but just to keep it simple so you can walk away with the takeaway, secondary bile acids, bad, short chain fatty acids, good. So we can say more unsaturated fatty acids, um, you know, are going to help make it so that there are lower concentrations of secondary bile acids. So that's part of the reason why there are some connections with unsaturated fatty acids and reduced secondary bile acids. And we've shown that with like walnut consumption. So when you eat more walnuts, we had lower secondary bile acids. So that's kind of the, the complicated explanation for, again, stay tuned as we better understand bile acids, but you can think of bile acids with fats, and fiber with short chain fatty acids, we want more fiber, more short chain fatty acids, less saturated fatty acids, and you'll end up with less secondary bile acids. That was a great explanation. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Hopefully you. It was clear. It's so complicated. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying my best on that, but it's an evolving area and I, I love it. 
I love complication, but um, the take home kind of side of things can get quite challenging. If you all are thinking about how do I tell my patients this? How do I tell my clients this? And I would just keep it simple, eat the rainbow, get more fiber and more unsaturated fatty acids and your gut's going to be happy. And so is your heart. Right. Well said, perfectly put, but it is, it's a very complicated um, category and area of expertise, but like at the end, how you just wrapped it up and delivered it to us was um, very, very helpful. So thank you. Very admirable because I know it's not easy to do that, you know, and that that's what we do, right? We unpack layers and layers of scientific information. Um, so Abby, somebody is asking, and you're going to probably know the question to this, is there any benefit from swapping over or a preference to goat or sheep milk? Um, I don't think so. I think that the, all of the, you know, it's all going to give you protein and magnesium and potassium um, as far as, you know, if you're drinking it, if it's made making your yogurt, if it's making your cheese, um, it's all dairy. I would imagine that the fat profile, the unsaturated and saturated pr fat profile might be slightly different the same way as when we look at different vegetable oils. Um, the, the profile is not exactly the same, but we, I would just have to find that actual breakdown of the fatty acid profile and see what the difference really is. Um, but certainly I would, I would think that it's giving you the same positive nutritional benefits that the cow's milk dairy would be giving if you're substituting it out for something else. So a taste preference. Yeah. A taste yeah. Preference for sure. And so somebody also asked, what about a gluten-free and dairy-free free diet for gut health? And I guess like, you know, we're talking about the Mediterranean diet. So like maybe putting that into play within a Mediterranean diet, if you were to go gluten-free and dairy-free, any benefits to the microgut biome? Off the top of my head, I feel like it would be this, this very similar, right? So there's just, there's a lot of gluten-free grains that you could have to replace grains that have gluten in them. Um, for dairy-free, again, there's a lot of dairy-free yogurt. If we wanted to keep that fermented um, yogurt in there and fermented cheese in there is something, there's a lot of um, other plant-based options. Um and you could still get the same similar nutrients that you've been trying to get. And of course, you get calcium also from, you know, leafy greens and other plant based sources as well. So as long as you are mindful about kind of how you are replacing those items, you could certainly easily do it, I think. And so, Hannah, is there any benefit from doing a Mediterranean diet? and going gluten-free and dairy-free for the microbiome? In other words, like, does the gluten or dairy, are the, do they become offenders in any way that it's almost like productive to remove them or like not even a little? Yeah, I'm not familiar with any benefits from that perspective as you're thinking about incorporating the microbiome. I mean, Certainly, if you have celiac disease, yeah, absolutely. Gluten-free, um, you know, I, I fully support that. You know, it's pro-inflammatory. You need to get the gluten out. But generally, the gluten side of things, when we think of whole grains, they're great sources of so many nutrients, fiber, resistant starch 
And those resistant starches and fibers are something that microbes love. And so, um, you know, selecting some other grains that can still give you that resistant starch through the cooking and cooling and um, also would have the fiber within them. I, I completely agree with what Abby said. That would be um, really important to do rather than eliminating all grains. And then for the dairy, similarly, again, I, as I think about dairy, I think, you know, what alternatives would they need and why? So certainly if you have lactose intolerance and, you know, some people can't even look at a glass of milk without having side effects. So, you know, eliminating that, I understand. But um, thinking about could there be potential ways to incorporate smaller amounts of different dairy foods to help them sustain their nutrition and something like, again, yogurt is generally better tolerated because the microbes that are in it, again, and back to this love of microbes, um, the microbes produce a enzyme that actually breaks down the lactose. It's present in the yogurt and then it's active in the gut. And that's why some individuals can tolerate yogurt, um, but they can't tolerate milk at all. So again, from the microbiome perspective, incorporating dairy and, and gluten-containing foods. I'm not familiar with any evidence to suggest that there would be a benefit there, but there may be some evidence that there could be detriments by excluding those. And um, what you mentioned with the milk, I don't know if this is true, but I've also heard that not people with celiac, of course, but people who have gluten sensitivities have an easier time digesting sourdough bread because from the same perspective, it's been fermented. So slightly digested and it's a little bit easier on your stomach. Is that, is there a merit to that? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. I saw that question about sourdough bread in the chat. Um, so what happens is, you know, sourdough bread would still be a fermented food because the microbes are breaking down some of those gluten and um, helping remove some of the phytates. Um, they also change the fiber content of it. And so when you have the sourdough bread, it can be better tolerated by um, some individuals that may have uh, gluten sensitivities. There's also some evidence that it may also slightly blunt the glycemic response compared to just a standard white bread. And then the other thing that I loved learning about um, since I've just been spending more time in the fermented food section is that it increases the mineral bioavailability so that calcium and the iron is going to be more bioavailable because the microbes have helped remove those anti-nutrients um, during the fermentation process. So it is okay that the microbes are destroyed through the baking process. Not all fermented foods have to have live microbes to be considered a fermented food. Where you really wanna be careful of making sure it's a fermented food is, is looking at the label. Cause some of those sauerkrauts, for example, are just made you know, with vinegar and they're shelf stable. So those kind of foods you're going to wanna you know, look in the refrigerated section to get those live microbes. But um, sourdough bread definitely has some benefits that are attributed to microbial. Uh, communities present in them. Right. And it tastes so darn good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's for sure. So we have more milk questions um, and which is not surprising because it's a part of recipes. It's a part of so many meals, breakfast for sure. People are asking also about the plant-based milks. Um, 
so like my understanding is uh, some of the plant-based milks, like almond milk, for example, and you could tell that it's so incredibly low in calories. It's mainly water with a couple of almonds and sometimes depending upon the brand, some thickeners, but there's pea protein, uh, pea milk, pea protein milk, there's cashew milk, there's flax milk, there's almond milk. There's like a million of these plant-based milk alternatives. Um, do you guys have a favorite one? Do you feel like there's any one go-to that is most beneficial to gut health? I like almond milk and plain unsweetened if I use it. Um, I always do like to tell people, as you kind of mentioned, it's it, it, all the vitamins and nutrients in it are supplements right? So if there's calcium in almond milk, it's not because of the almonds, it's because the calcium was added. So just nutritionally, it's not as well-rounded naturally as a actual dairy product. Mm -hmm. So that is important to remember. There's less protein in all these things. Um, and if you're going to bake with it, you have to really understand the recipe you're doing because a one-to-one -one swap will not give you the same product. So if you have a product that has just milk in it and you're putting in almond milk, it might have a different taste, a different texture, a different, um, if it's a muffin, fluffy or less fluffy. Um, if you're using buttermilk, that's a fermented milk product. Um, so if you're using a plant-based instead, you need to put vinegar or citrus juice in it to essentially ferment that almond milk or that plant-based milk before putting it into the recipe, because they're not one-to-one -one on fat and acid levels. Um, so that's just something for people to think about too, as far as if they're trying to do some swap outs. And so one thing I've always heard also is that to your point that the calcium and the D is fortified and mm -hmm. it tends to settle at the bottom. So if you're going to be having a bowl of cereal in the morning, you want to shake your yeah. bottle or your container of almond milk or whatever milk it is to yeah. make sure that you're dispersing and redistributing all of these supplements. Is that true? Yeah, I always do that. And you can see it on depending on the brand. If it's clear on the bottom, you can kind of almost see it settling. Like so a reminder to settles. shake it. Okay. Yeah. So a little shaking before pouring. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so let's see, we have a lot of questions. Um, organic. <laughs> so when talking about gut health, is it better if you can afford it and if you have accessibility? for organic, um, mainly fruits and vegetables, but let's open this up across the board to flowers and other things as well. Um, is that the way to go or does it really not matter? I mean, so I, I run a teaching kitchen in the Bronx. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Hannah. I was just gonna say, I, if, whatever you can afford <laughs> is my, my always my answer. I'd rather have you eat the fruits and vegetables and all those things than not eat them because you, you can't afford the organic, but. Hannah, you can go ahead. Yeah, I was going to go with the research. I, I have seen very limited, if any, research to demonstrate that organic produce is any more nutritious than, you know, conventional produce. So I would, again, in our household, we almost never buy organic, you know, as full um, reveal there. I don't see that, um, you know, there gets, 
I just don't see the nutritional benefit for the, you know, the cost analysis, which are the two factors that I would consider it. Um, when we do our grocery shopping, there um, is some tiny developing research that there may be a benefit of there being more microbes in the organic produce versus the non-organic. Um, and there is a growing interest in the presence of live microbes in our food and then being connected with health. And so, again, I this is all just very early cross-sectional and epidemiological data. And it's the analyses they've done so far and the papers that have been published are are very much confounded by it's difficult you know, to separate organic versus non-organic produce if you use the NHANES data, for example. And um, so just eating more fruits and vegetables, you're going to be more healthful. But that's really the only area that I'm starting to keep an eye on as it might potentially be a reason for my household to select a few um, organic items, you know, that would make sense, right? It's still not going to make matter for a banana, but maybe my apples and pears, it might matter. And would the reasoning be because they have to work harder to thrive because they're not coated with chemicals or pesticides to keep away the hoodlums? Um, so the organic will still use some, you know, different formulations to reduce pests. I think I'm not as familiar with the agronomy behind it. I'd have to, you know, ask my brother who's, you know, they've done degrees in plant sciences and entomology. So they do use slightly different practices, but just because they're organic, my understanding is it doesn't mean they won't have some sort of pesticide on them. It may just be slightly different formulations as to what goes into that pesticide to make it still adhere to the organic. But I don't want to go too far down that because I, um, my understanding of it isn't too profound, but certainly your comment is um, for when plants are stressed, it can result in them producing greater phytonutrients. So if we think about a stressed grape on a vine because of drought, it could produce more resveratrol. But again, as we think about that downstream health benefit I was mentioning, you know, it's about three milligrams in a liter of wine and to get a health benefit of resveratrol, it's mostly in the supplement form where you would get 200 to 300 milligrams. So I still am, um, would recommend, you know, eating the grapes, organic, non-organic, whichever one fits for your budget and your, your priorities, your, um, however you decide to make those choices. But I'm not someone who, you know, says you should be eating organic produce. That's just not something that I encourage personally. And also because we're practical. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've got a, um, you know, balancing my, my budget, just, just like other people. And, um, yeah, I, I just don't see the cost benefit analysis from my perspective as hasn't been worth it. Okay. Um, so I don't want to skip over this question because we have a lot of interest in artificial sweeteners specific to gut health. So can you all talk about the impact? Are there specific artificial sweeteners or I should say maybe sugar substitutes that have less of a negative effect? Are there some that are bigger offenders when it comes to the microbiome? How does that work? So for the non-nutritive sweeteners, I know there's a, a lot of interest in this area, especially because there has been a little bit of work from the gut microbiome perspective where individuals that don't consume non-nutritive sweeteners, if you give them a challenge of it, 
their more acute effect for certain ones was a very slight increase in their glycemic response. But I still need to dive into that paper because when they registered it at clinicaltrials.gov, their primary outcome was slightly different than what they reported. They reported area under the curve in the paper in for glycemic responses, as opposed to like, I, I can't remember what it was supposed to be originally, let's say two hours, um, the blood glucose level after two hours, right? So similar to what you would do if you're doing a, a glucose challenge for a pregnancy test. And so the clinical relevance of area under the curve can sometimes be a, a little bit harder to tease apart. And for those papers, when I did look at them, even though they may have been statistically significant, I don't think the clinical relevance of them was a large enough magnitude where it would be robust enough for me to say, don't consume non-nutritive sweeteners because they're you know destroying your microbiome. That's not a message that I got from those. I still think that non-nutritive sweeteners if that's the only way you are able to maintain your weight or maintain your blood glucose levels, again, I think those can fit within the context of the diet. I don't necessarily have any major concerns for any of those right now based on the evidence I've seen in the literature. And so Abby, when it comes to cooking and your culinary creations, do you ever use non-nutritive sugar substitutes or any of the artificial sweeteners? And if so, what are your go-tos? Yeah. Um... Not frequently, um, because from a taste perspective, I find they the level of sweetness is so much higher than other sources. Um, so using a stevia, for example, would probably be the closest thing that I would ever play around with. Um, and I spend a lot of time figuring out how much to add so that it's not crazy sweet. A lot of the things that I end up doing instead are cutting back on the natural sugar that might be in it and using um, fruit or dried fruit or juice or other, or, you know, again, back to the herbs and other methods to bring out flavor and something interesting. Sometimes I use green tea or uh, Earl Grey tea and cupcakes or things like that, lemon, citrus, all these other things in order to bring flavor and cut back on that sugar. I do also use honey quite a bit, um, not necessarily because of anything other than I like the flavor of it. So it's still mm -hmm. sugar, right? Um, it's just a more natural source of sugar, but it adds a nice flavor and I find I can use less of it um, and still bring out a natural sweetness. So but as far as like aspartame and all the things I know have been going around lately, um, if you want to have a diet soda that has aspartame in it, we're not drinking, you know, 30 of them a day. Maybe you're having one a day. Um, and again, my review of the research understanding is that doesn't, isn't going to really mess up our gut microbiome unless there's something else happening. Those sugar alcohols, sometimes people have a reaction to those if they're not used to them. Um, right. But, you know, that would be the only thing that I would be careful about are, are those sugar alcohols, maybe. Okay. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one last quick question because I really do want to answer um, this audience question and it's going to be a quick answer. And then I feel so terrible saying this, but like the hour flies by so quickly <laughs> and it's done, but 
Um, the question is, when I hear about the Mediterranean diet, I think of my diet, which is Indian vegetarian. Are there any major differences between the two? Honestly, probably not. Just the, the the type of food in a different form. If you're vegetarian, then then that heavy fish part is is obviously not there. But Indian spices, I consider very similar, depending on what region in India you're where you're from, right? Um, it's a lot of that cumin, coriander, turmeric, those warm, earthy spices. Um, maybe you're using um, ghee instead of uh, like a vegetable-based oil. Um, but certainly non-bread and all these other things are still uh, similar to a lot of, of the same things we see throughout the Mediterranean region. Great. Well, that was a perfect way to end this. No, go ahead, go ahead Hannah. <laughs> I was just going to quickly add, we eat a lot of Pakistani food in our household because my husband is Pakistani and does the cooking. So I was just going to put a plug in for all the onions and garlic in there mm. um, and tomatoes and lentils because You've got the onions and garlics, have the inulin type fructans to keep the microbes happy. And then you've got, you know, like the tomatoes and lentils. Again, the lentils have galacto-oligosaccharides, so keeping those microbes happy. And, and then it helps with the iron absorption when you have the tomatoes in there. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of those cuisines. And it um, also supports gut health as well. And yeah. by the way, your kitchen will never smell more fabulous than when you whip yeah. up something of like an Indian entree. Oh my gosh. Ugh, best. Okay. We're all hungry now. <laughs> well, that is all we have time for, sadly. I want to thank everybody for joining us. We had a really, really great crowd today. Um, we hope that you enjoyed today's session and got a lot out of it. I know that I sure did. Thank you once again to Hannah and Abby. Thank you also to the National Honey Board for making today possible. And most importantly, heartfelt thanks to all of you for choosing to tune in and for making the world a healthier and happier place. Here's to good health and delicious food. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye, guys. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.